0: This podcast is sponsored by Gemography. If you're struggling to find top developers in a competitive market, Gemography connects you with the top tier remote developers from untapped regions, all pre-vetted and interview ready. And the best part, they handle recruitment, payroll, admin service, equipment, office space, healthcare, and benefits in full local compliance. You'll know all costs upfront, no surprises. Don't let big players hoard the talent Start hiring world-class developers remotely at geomography.com slash hire. That's G-E-M-O-G-R-A-P-H-Y dot com slash hire.
1: Let's do it. Let's do it. Broadcasting from around the world. You're listening to the first one hundred, a podcast on how founders acquired their first 100 paying customers. Here's your host, Hadi Rodwan.
0: Good to have you on the show, Sterling. How are you doing today?
1: Doing well, thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely, I'm very excited about this uh, episode because I have so many questions on how to become a better sales leader and you've done it in the past uh, with DV. Sterling Snow today is our guest who has helped TV reach uh, 380 million in funding and billions of dollars in in valuation. And currently you're a venture partner at PDN Venture Partners, which is an early stage venture capital that is helping entrepreneurs grow their business. Sterling, how did you end up in sales, not in finance or strategy or engineering?
1: Yeah. When I was going to school, I went to school for finance. And when I got into one of my first companies, which was Jive, I just gravitated towards where the growth was happening in the business. And there's nothing that grows quite like the revenue teams, everything from you know marketing to sales and all that good stuff. And so it really was just sort of a natural pull to where I felt like the action was happening. And it's a little bit like a sport, where you kind of get addicted to playing the game every month, every quarter, every year. And it's very tangible to get that dopamine hit when you hit your number and, and some of those kinds of things. So yeah, that's how I ended up in on the sales
0: side of the house. Amazing. And early on in maybe childhood days, were you someone who was very introvert or more extrovert and happy to engage and, you know, get your ideas out there? It's a good question. I would
1: count myself, even from when I was a kid, as somebody who was relatively extroverted, but it also takes a lot of energy for me. Some people recharge when they're speaking with other people, meeting new people, doing those kinds of things. I'm not that way, but I do enjoy a fair amount of uh, extroverted activity. So I don't know. I'm probably somewhere in the middle.
0: Amazing, amazing! is there any techniques that you've used in the past that you know made you very confident in approaching people maybe in early days and then later leads and how how did you overcome? rejections because rejections come naturally when you're trying to get uh, people to buy something from you. Maybe one out of 10 would say yes, but the other nine have rejected you and it has this emotional connection. When someone gets rejected, they either give up or they have the motivation to try again. Is there any frameworks or tactics that you've used to help bolster your sales uh, career?
1: No frameworks necessarily, but I think the thing that matters the most is If you understand why you're doing what you're doing, if you can tie it back to sort of a broader mission and vision, then it's easy to not get discouraged by the nine that don't work and it's really easy to get excited by the one that does. So I think when people face rejection, you have to understand why you're putting yourself through that, why you're subjecting yourself to that situation. That's my big thing, is why are you doing it? Do you believe in what you're pitching, what you're selling? Because it's all the same, right? Raising money, selling a product, networking. It's just everything's very similar. So you have to understand why you're doing what you're doing, and then the rejections are, are a lot easier to get past.
0: Makes a lot of sense. Thank you for sharing this. You know, the show is about the first 100 paying customers. That's why we call it the first 100. When you started with DV, what were early strategies that you've deployed so that you bring that sales velocity up? Is there anything that wasn't scalable, but you had to do it early on?
1: Sure. There's tons of things, right? But for me, the focus always ends up being on the levers that you can control in in big ways. And so I think a lot about the inbound marketing side of the house and how do you increase top of funnel activity? Because if you can solve for that, there's really no problems you can't solve. So I'm always a fan of starting there.
0: If we look at the top of the funnel strategies that you deployed early on, what were things that, you know, started to fill that upper layer bucket of the funnel?
1: I think the great marketers have a way to almost invent their own channels. So you think about things like content ads in newsletters, you think about trade show strategies, but I think the key thing, if you're actually going to have outsized results is figuring out a new muscle that hasn't been deployed. Everybody can spend money on Google and LinkedIn and Facebook. Those aren't proprietary channels, but when you can have something proprietary that you've invented you can really get outsized returns, especially on your investment in top of funnel activity.
0: Is there any anecdotes or stories from your early days at TV that you could share with us that can highlight this?
1: Sure. So here's a fun story. This is before we would really raised any money or anything. And there was a big tech trade show that was happening in Utah. It's called Tech Summit. And we couldn't really afford to buy a booth and do a sponsorship and all that stuff. So what we did is we had one of our employees get dressed in a purple suit with a purple cowboy hat. We taped $2 bills all over the suit and all over the hat. And we called him the cashback cowboy. And he just walked around the trade show, like giving people, you know, these $2 bills off of his suit and telling them what Divi did and how we could get them more cash back. So you think about those quick hit hack kind of ways to uh, drum up demand for yourself in unique ways.
0: That's a beautiful story. And I think uh, it doesn't just, you know, up demand, it also exposes the brand because now you have that virality in terms of the story of the tech show, right? There someone who has done something different than just coming and presenting. So this is amazing guerrilla marketing tactics. If you had today the, the 10x the budget that you had back then, where would you have invested it?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think there's lots of things that, that could have done that could have done more with better investing. And, and I would probably say channel channel partnerships, channel relationships, things that don't necessarily pay off in the short term, but tend to really change trajectory when you look five plus years
0: out. That's interesting. Is there any channel in mind that you could share with us that you've missed in the past that you could have doubled down on?
1: I wish we would have done a better job in the accounting and bookkeeping channels at Divi with the product that we had and with our go to market motion. That's something that I definitely could have done a better job of.
0: Amazing. You talked about, you know, being both a marketer and a salesperson. There's always that dance between these two departments. If you're starting today, you're a first time founder. What should you prioritize hiring a marketing team first or a sales team?
1: Well, I'm a big believer that you shouldn't have them be separate departments, that you should create a revenue department and have marketing, sales, implementation, customer success, customer support all under the revenue roof. And I believe that that's the way that modern CROs are going to function. But to answer your question specifically, I think that you have to work on your method for generating demand. That's the first thing that you have to work on. Because if you don't have demand, it doesn't matter how good salespeople are. Salespeople are there to convert demand, not not necessarily generate it. So I definitely want to fix marketing problems before I fix sales problems. That's how I think about the funnel.
0: Makes a lot of sense. And I think uh, once you define it this way, it doesn't bring those two buckets separate because demand generation can come from marketing and then conversion would come from sales. So if they're in the same department, they're essentially generating the top line. And if you were to think about it today, if you were to create an ideal organization chart, so you're the startup founder, you're coming in, you maybe raised your seed round or your series A, how would you define those roles? Where do you start your hiring spree? How, how does the organ, organization chart look under the revenue leader?
1: Yeah. So you, I always start with people who can, in, within marketing, who can build pipeline. So they build pipeline through demand gen. So you're talking about campaign specialists, performance marketers is kind of your, your first couple of, of hires there and then you're moving down the funnel and this is like AE's account executives and you're going to add sort of your first people to create pipeline, your first people to convert pipeline, and then your first people to implement it. And you just you work from the top of the funnel on down and once you've got that whole vertical structure, then you can start going horizontal and getting into more things.
0: Makes sense. There's so many startup founders that are listening to this podcast and know when you're starting there's two schools there's one school that says you're as the founder you need to lead sales you need to go out and sell maybe the first 10 accounts 15 20 30 accounts and then maybe when you uh, prove product market fit you have a couple of millions in your bank you need to get a sales leader or a cro then there's another school that says you know focus on your strengths so if you're a technical co-founder focus on your strengths and then get a sales leader if we were to take this hypothetical case where i'm a founder of a b2b enterprise software i want to sell my software walk us through your sales playbook if you're doing a founder let's say strategy what will you do on day one, 90, 180 and then 365 and how would you define success each one of these milestones I know it's a long question.
1: (laughs) I do think that initially startup founders have to be very involved in sales. And the reason for that is less about sales. It's more about hearing the feedback that the market has about your product. And if you outsource those conversations with prospects and customers too early you won't be able to build the right type of product that actually is going to be able to scale and and fix the market need. So I agree with that. But I also think that once you've found product market fit, you need to focus on scaling other parts of the business. And so you can't hang on to it too long. That's how I think about the first part of the question. What was the second part you asked there?
0: So if you were to build that sales block playbook by day one, day 90, day 180, 365, and then how would you measure success at each, you know, level? Day one, what does success mean to you? Day 365, what does success mean to you?
1: I think it's all relative. It's about what your goals are. But I think, to me, success is designated by working towards building an enduring business. And so that can be revenue targets, that can be free cash flow targets, that can be product milestones, and, and really it's just very situational depending on what you're trying to build.
0: Makes a lot of sense. If I'm today a founder starting from scratch and I'm going to go with a founder-led sales strategy, and I don't have connections, right? So I'm, I'm going with the cold approach, which is cold emailing, cold calling. What advice do you have for me? <laughs>
1: I don't know that there's too much innovation here, but what I would say is focus on changing your message because you want to see what resonates. You want to see what gets people to respond and take a phone call, listen to a demo. So don't get so focused in just shipping outreach, you know, sending emails, making calls that you forget to iterate on the actual message that you're trying to use to get people in the door.
0: Makes sense. And how would I, you know, figure out if my message is working? Is it just the number of open rate? Or do you think there are tools that I could use that could help me in that domain?
1: I'd just be paying attention to, yeah, open rates, response rates, click-through rates. I'd just be looking for engagement. And if it's getting ignored, it's not working. And so that's, yeah, that's how I think about that.
0: You've shifted today to become a venture partner at uh, Palium Venture Partners. What triggered that shift?
1: Uh, so Pelion had been on our board. Our board member is a guy named Ben Lambert. He led our series a had been on our board the whole time. And so these were people who I, you know, we knew very well, we liked, we trusted. And when, so I, I, we, we operated jive, sold jive, we'd operated divvy, sold divvy. And it just felt like the right fit at the right time. And to time to learn a, a, a new industry and develop a new muscle and And that's how that came to be.
0: What excites you the most today about entrepreneurs? What are you looking for in people, in industry trends?
1: It's really all about the founders. Are they thinking big? Do they have a hard problem? Do they have a unique insight that's going to allow them to create massive businesses? And so the thing that gets me the most excited is the quality of the founder. Everything else is secondary to that.
0: Amazing. What is a principle that you live by that has helped you become who you are today?
1: Yeah, interesting question. I, I think the one that comes to me the most often is that people who are able to choose to do hard things end up having an easy life and people who choose to do easy things end up having a hard life. And I think that's a state of mind that's helped me a lot.
0: This is a great uh, principle. Is there any anecdotes or stories that you could share with us in terms of that principle?
1: I mean, take the decision to choose to go into startups, right? There's certainly easier, less stressful career paths. But if you can gut through those and have some grit, you end up with a much more impressive, in my opinion, set of skills and experiences that allow you to take on the world and, and make life a little bit easier. You also put yourself in a position to have outsized financial outcomes, which which makes your life easier. And so that's a, an example that's probably relevant.
0: What are you currently obsessed with that others rarely talk about? Oh,
1: <sighs> man. Right now, I'm obsessed with the fact that you have to do multiple things well. I'm specifically thinking about startups. We came from the last 10 years where people were like, you could grow really fast, but you didn't have to be efficient. And today, we're talking a lot about efficiencies. But what I think we really have to do in startup land today is you have to be efficient and you have to grow really fast. You don't get to pick between between those things, especially if you're a venture backed tech company. So I, I think a lot about false dichotomies and I talk a lot about false dichotomies everywhere in our life, but there's a, an example of one in startup.
0: Do you feel that revenue and profitability are they should work together they should grow together but in the startup world they seem to at the beginning move apart so you focus on top line you spend so much marketing dollars sales dollars you make a lot of mistakes profitability goes down and then the expectation is you get more funding as long as your unit economics makes sense you get more funding and that gap might increase might decrease we've seen it in a lot of companies we've seen it in big companies like uber where they've raised millions and millions of dollars the gap went up now it's going down after maybe 10 12 years do you feel that this type of obsession is something that you can manage from day one or or it's it's difficult to be efficient and effective at the same time when you're starting
1: well, the truth is, there's no right answer. The Uber playbook, where they raised billions and billions and uh, burned very, very aggressively, and then you know, kind of flipped to eventual profitability. I tend to think that it's very situational. It depends on the cost of money. Money was very cheap for a very long time, there, and there's no, there's no right answer. There are very smart reasons why you should increase your burn and grow quickly, but the muscle that we're seeing today in the best startups are a lot more around increasing revenue and profitability much earlier on in the cycle than we've seen in the past 10 years.
0: Amazing, what's the best advice you ever received? And what's the best advice you've ever given?
1: Best advice I ever received, probably, to never allow yourself to be a victim. It doesn't matter the situation that you find yourself in. You have to take ownership of it and and never allow yourself to be a victim of it. And it's probably probably among the best uh, advice I ever got. And then the best advice I ever gave. That's interesting. I give a lot of advice. I wish I followed half of it. I would say for people who are early on in their career, The best advice I give is to find someone who has the same trajectory that they want to emulate. So if you've seen somebody become a leader very fast or gain technical skills very fast or whatever it is, you want to put yourself in situations that can replicate the goals and the vision that you have for yourself. And so think about the people and their trajectory and their journey, first and foremost, when you're making early career decisions is something that I think has been helpful to some folks.
0: Thank you for sharing this. This was very helpful. One last question. What's next for you?
1: Well, right now I'm enjoying the venture capital world. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to investing in and working with the best founders at one of the best firms in the state and in the country. So excited to find and fund the next great businesses
0: amazing and if early founders or people who wish to go into entrepreneurship are listening to this what type of investments are you are looking to do what's your appetite
1: so we do seed and series a primarily we have a, a focus on B2B technology, but we do we do a fair amount of B2C and D2C and some other stuff like that. But the sweet spot would be B2B seed and Series A companies.
0: Excellent. We'll put that in the show notes. Sterling, thank you for being part of our show. This was an amazing and insightful episode. Is there anything you'd like to share with our audience?
1: No, I, I think the conversation was great. And uh, thanks for having me on. It was a blast.
0: Amazing. Is there a way we can reach you if if we're listening to this? LinkedIn, email, anything that uh, you'd like uh, us to put in the show notes?
1: Yeah, LinkedIn and Twitter are probably the easiest places to find me.
0: Thank you, Sterling. Have a great day.
1: Thanks, you too. Thank you so much for listening to The First 100. We hope it inspired you in your journey. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play or Spotify and share it with a friend starting their entrepreneurship journey. Leave us a five star review. Your support will help spread our podcast to more viewers.